Welcome to episode 63 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Oh. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much. We're recording on a Saturday, which is a little out of ordinary, so my whole my whole world is a little rocked right now, but it's all good. It's a rainy, like torrential downpour Saturday here, but it feels so right to just be inside having a good conversation about theology. Yeah. It's like freezing here. We've we skipped straight past fall and went straight to winter in New Hampshire. That is basically the New England way. Yeah. Is you get basically four or five hours of fall, like the leaves change, they fall on the ground, and then that's just prep for you to get out your shovel. Yeah, it's just long enough for all the leaf peepers to screw up our traffic patterns. <laughs> I love how, and I can say this because of growing up in New England, I love how New Englanders have this really strong bias against people that flood their domain when the leaves are pretty and then just leave as if like they're real. I mean, they don't cause a whole lot of problems. But it is this kind of thing where you're like, listen, you really, you don't even deserve to look at our gorgeous leaves because you don't have to put up with being here all year long. Yeah. The motto for New Hampshire is live free or die, but I feel like the motto should be get off my lawn for like the whole state. <laughs> it's kind of the attitude we have. It's like, I will smile and wave at you on the street, but otherwise get off my lawn. I love that you identify now with that New Hampshire way. Yes. I love that. So speaking of things, either that you're affirming or denying, what you got going on this week? So um, I want to affirm uh, for two reasons. I want to affirm Matt Butts. So Matt Butts. Um, yeah, Matt Butts. Matt Butts was one of the founding members of the Society of Reform Podcasters. And for a variety of life reasons, he stepped away from the podcasting game right now. He's still very active in the Society of Reform Podcasters and very active kind of behind the scenes on the Reformed Outlook. But he was generous enough to send us a new mixing board, uh, which we need in order to be able to do some of the voicemail stuff we want. So huge affirmation and huge thanks for Matt Butts. Um, yes. Pray for him. He's looking into law school. He's got all sorts of stuff going on. So say a prayer for him that um, God would bless him richly for his faithfulness and generosity as he um, kind of seeks this new chapter of life. Thank you, Matt Butts, for throwing a board our way. Yes, we love you. Absolutely. What about you, Jesse? So one of the things I've been realizing recently is that our adoption in Christ just seems to be this undervalued concept in modern evangelicalism. So this week, I'm affirming this book, which I recently read, entitled Sons in the Sun by David Gardner. Have you heard of this book? I have, but only because you've mentioned it a bunch of times. I haven't read it, though. Yeah, this book I can't stop talking about because this book is phenomenal. And it's basically one of those concepts where you think you have a decent grasp of what adoption is, or even sometimes in the Reformed worldview, it kind of gets relegated somewhere in the midst of the Order Salutis, but... Garner does this really good way of breaking that down. It's kind of like the, you think you know, but you have no idea. So it's a great way to understand adoption, especially if you basically only relate to that concept by way of like the human analog. And he really pulls that all apart, yeah. talks about weothusia in its Greek context, the redemptive historical and eschatological perspective on this. It is mind blowing. So especially as like the year draws to a close, if you're looking for something that kind of jumpstart you into thinking into this next year about you're kind of strengthening your Christian walk or gaining a deeper perspective. This is that book. So 
go out and just grab a copy of Sons in the Sun by David Gardner. You won't be disappointed. We'll have to do a book swap at Christmas between you and me, and I'll have to take a look at that one. It's really good. You will enjoy it. It's technical at times, but it's the kind of writing that really, I don't know, just kind of pulls you apart. It really makes you appreciate that adoption is so much more than I, I'd ever given credit to. And it really has made me fall in love with Christ all over again. So even just like the title, Sons in the Sun, you know, it's like very clever, very specific. It's not just Sons of God, but yeah. how that adoption all takes place is, it's radical. It's super radical. So yeah, definitely check it out. That's great. So you denying anything this week or is it everything just rainbows and butterflies? No, I am denying something this week. So I'm denying internet lag. So I've gotten a, a <laughs> tiny bit of feedback, mostly from my wife, but a tiny bit of feedback that the last couple episodes we've done sounded a little janky. Um, there was some weird long pauses. There was some stuff going on. And the reason for that is I love the internet and it lets us do this podcast, but every once in a while, it's like the internet hates us and we get these weird long like lag delays and it's really hard to edit together in a way that doesn't work. So today, right now, it looks like it's pretty good, but just internet lag, it just in general is like, it's annoying. It makes you want to like put your fist through the computer screen. Yeah. If you're ever listening to this and you think the conversation sounds awkward, First, that's probably because it might just be awkward it's between true. us. And, and second, I just like to have pregnant pauses. Sometimes I like for Tony to say something. And then after he's already made this really great point, maybe like five, seven seconds later, then I'm going to be like, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was purposeful. Uh, this is how we converse normally. Yes. So I, I'm totally down with that. How about you? So this week... What I wanted to deny is just something that caught me totally off guard by surprise. Something that I thought was going to be amazing and add some kind of quality to my life that I did not have before I partook of it. I got some dried papaya this week. <laughs> and I was expecting you to lead up to some serious like Yeah, no, like this that. this is no, this is how serious this is the real deal here. This okay. is serious stuff because Papaya should be delicious. Like it's like a tropical fruit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the things that it's supposed to be like the candy that God made straight up. And I had it dried. And first it was super chewy. And second, I'm disappointed to say mine at least had this like kind of fishy dried fish taste to it. Have you ever had dried papaya? No, but you're really not selling it. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to because I had several pieces on different days and it kind of, I've had, have you ever had like dried fish before either as yeah. part of like any kind of Asian cuisine? Like that can be delicious in its own right. But this had kind of like a, a funky like fish aftertaste. So somebody needs to let me know if my, my palate is totally off or maybe that's the appeal. It's like the combination of fruit and fish, the two F's, which you want to have together, but no. I was not feeling it. So I got to deny that denying yeah. dried papaya. You know, when you dry something out, all dried things kind of look the same. So maybe you actually got some dried fish instead of some dried papaya. <laughs> it could be. I also thought with what you're about to say there, it was going to be like super profound. I thought you were about to give me like some kind of science lesson when you're like, when you dry out things, <laughs> the molecular structure changes such that it morphs No, how they taste in your mouth. I don't know. I, that so. that might be true. Could be. I don't think it is. But if you had said it with conviction, I would have been like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what are yeah. we doing today? This is a kind of a groundbreaking show for us. 
And it, I like how we say a bunch of things about our show, and one of them is always like, this is a special cast. <laughs> this is a special episode. It's all special. All our, all our casts are snowflakes, but this one is a little bit special because we're doing a questions cast. I know. We've gotten so many great questions via email or just people trying to speak into the conversation, which I know we both really love. Yes. And sometimes somebody will ask something and we think, you know what? That's probably a good thing for us to talk about and everybody would be interested in it. Or maybe there's a lot of people with that question who just didn't write in. So this is hashtag all questions, all cast. Yes. And we, it's like, um, I've heard this from other podcasters that there's like a certain point where you're like begging people to call in and send emails. And then all of a sudden it's like the floodgates opened. And I feel like the floodgates opened on both voicemails and emails all at the same time. So I'm really excited. Keep it up. It's great to have this dialogue and interaction with our listeners. Um, so we're going to try to do Maybe some questions each week uh, when we have them, or we might collect them and do kind of a big one if there's themes going on. But we're going to do all email questions all the time today. Yeah, it's going to be great. And ironically, as I was putting together the questions for this week, we've got three or four of them. I realized that three of the four are all from people with the name James, various (laughs) derivative of James. So these are different people, but we have like a disproportionate amount of people named Jim writing us. So Please come and offset the odds by shooting us an email. Yeah. But if your name is Jim, you're going to have to chill. No more emails from you guys. <laughs> but if you have another name that's not Jim, uh, please, please email us. I'm just kidding. Whatever your name is, email us. Yes. So let me throw a question at you, Tony. Let's do it. It's going to be great. So this is a great question that comes from Jimmy, and it's on the possibility of entertaining angels. And this is kind of a springboard from when we talked about ghosts. But let me just give you a snippet from his email so I can get the context for you. Here's what Jimmy writes. I've had an experience that I've never quite been able to fully understand that some have suggested maybe it was angels to me. I was a teenager on a winter youth retreat. Our last small group breakout session was heavy on prayer. Most of us finished up in the allotted time or a little before. So we left about five girl leaders and teens mixed, stayed behind in a room. About half an hour later, it was time for lunch and the girls hadn't come out yet. I went to the room to tell them so that they would not miss the lunch. I opened the door and saw that in addition to the girls we'd left behind, the room was full of teenagers that weren't members of our youth group. It was a multiple group retreat. I figured that something bigger was happening there and chose not to interrupt. So I closed the door. Later, I caught up with one of the leaders who was in the room and asked her about the other teenagers that had joined them. She said no one else had come into the room, and I asked what, and she asked what I was talking about. I explained what I saw, and she was puzzled. She said, well, maybe it was angels. So here's the question kind of Jimmy comes to at the end of all this. Is it theologically accurate to suggest that Jimmy may have witnessed angels, and is this possibly like a Second Kings 6 scenario? So, boom. Start us off, Tony. So I wrote back to Jimmy and I'm not going to just like read his email because that would probably be really boring. But um, I think one of the things that happens in the reform community that is particularly the people who claim cessationism, right? Cessationism is the idea that the signs gifts have ceased is they actually extend that cessation to kind of like all supernatural activity. And I don't think that's justified by either you know the position or by the text obviously so i don't think there's any reason to say that this couldn't have been angels right it's it's possible um where i would start to say or question 
if it is and would actually start to say it's not angels would be if the angels are doing things like revealing doctrine or something right. like that. Right. Um, and that's because that kind of gets into where we would say the cessation of gifts happens, right? Revelation is closed in the canon. We don't need a new revelation. We don't want a new revelation. And um, so if angels are telling you things, especially things that are either outside of the boundaries of scripture um, or are contradictory to scripture, it's probably not angels that are doing that. But I don't see any real reason at this point to say that it couldn't be Jim. Uh, Jimmy couldn't be right that he couldn't have witnessed angels. Um, and just for reference, in case people don't know, um, what he's referring to with the Second Kings six situation is um, when uh, I think it's Elijah, probably uh, Elisha. Elisha, at this point. yeah. He he kind of goes out, and this army is out there, and someone you know is kind of. Um, He's, he's like nervous about this army and he says, well, we don't have anything to worry about. And then the, um, the guy says, I don't really understand. And it's, his eyes are opened and he sees that there's all these angels kind of, um, defending them. And, and it's, that's what he's kind of pointing at. Could this be possible that he was seeing into what angels were doing? And in this, it looks like the angels were kind of praying with the girls or something like that. Um, I think it's totally possible. What do you think? Sure. I think it it may be possible. What I love about the question is, I think everybody's heard a story like this. If you've been in the church for any length of time, something of this kind of ilk. So I appreciate Jimmy just throwing it out there for discussion and letting us chat about it. Yeah. I also am sure that I, the Bible, like in terms of like biblical topics, nothing provokes more wild speculation and weird debate than angels, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is one of those things. So we've reserved, if you hear somebody say like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, that question nowadays is like raised to caricature people who are indulging in, in weird debates about this. But like in, from my understanding, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, but my understanding is especially in the middle ages, there were some like knockout weird debates raging about all manner of angelic things. And my favorite quote on this is from this uh, dude, I think he's a 19th century theologian, Augustus Strong, who okay. pointed out that in medieval theology, here's his quote, even the excrements of angels were subjects of discussion for if there was angels food and if angels ate, it was argued that we must take the logical consequences. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I never thought we'd be talking about like angel poo, but I think it's funny <laughs> that that basically this became so hotly debated at one point in time that, that we need to have that discussion. And second, I just love that he calls um, the process of making that happen. Take the logical consequences. Yeah, that's um, funny. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, that the Bible doesn't say about angels, but there's a lot it does say. There, right. There's like 250, over 250 references or something like that. So here's what I wanted to kind of throw out for a discussion with you as we kind of talk around this topic. And that was if we look again, like you brought up the second Kings six passage where Elisha's servant is being given the ability to see the angelic host that's around the city. And Elisha, I think actually prays that his eyes would be opened. Right. Most of the time angels are God's unseen ministers. And one of the more interesting questions I think of all about angels has to do with their unseen service on behalf of believers. So scripture portrays angels as caretakers of God's providence on our behalf. And that's like Hebrews one ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So in the context of that passage and with what we know about angels, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the fact that most of the time when angels are present, it's to show some demonstrative form of encouragement or power or support to do God's will. 
So are there times where they're being seen, but not really known or not? In other words, like they're not, they're kind of so subtle that there's nothing of substance being communicated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, if you go back and listen to our, um, our, I think it was like episode two, where we talked about Satan and angel, uh, Satan and demons. There's a lot of like common misconceptions about angels. You know, people conceptualize them like they're omnipresent and there's this infinite number of angels and they can do anything. Um, And obviously, you know, even demons are constrained within God's will. They, they, they operate according to what God wills them to operate, just like all of creation does. But angels are not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. Um, and I think you're right that they, they operate mostly behind the scenes. Um, and because they operate mostly behind the scenes, we really are just left with speculation about what they're doing. And so, you know, a lot of us get our like angelology, if you want to call it that, from like Frank Peretti's books from uh, Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness that like when we worship in the church, um, the the angels are like sitting in the rafters watching us and worshiping us. And maybe they are. I I don't know. I don't know that there's necessarily any biblical warrant to believe that that's like a regular occurrence um, other than the fact that it, it actually seems like the primary responsibility of angels in the Bible is just to worship God. It's like this right. entire heavenly host of of beings that are created just to to hover around God and give him praise for eternity. Um so I think that we need to remember that about them that their primary function is not really to serve us. Um it seems like some of them may have been kind of repurposed or retasked um to do that that um they are sort of delegated to bring tidings of of revelatory things. We see that in the New Testament a lot, especially in the gospels. The angels come at major points in revelation to sort of communicate God's will to people. You think of like the nativity again at the resurrection. Um and then they're sent to minister, you know, they, they, a lot of times when miraculous things happen, um, one way or another, the agency of that occurrence is attributed to angels. So angels are the ones that unlock the door when the apostles are free from prison or something like that. Right. Um, and some, some more liberal scholars would kind of speculate, well, that's just a, a sort of a circumlocution or it's a way of talking about God's direct agency in a way that sort of like separates him from the act. But if we take the Bible at its word, it seems like God does choose to operate at, with angels as kind of his um, representatives or agents rather than um, acting directly on the created order itself. I think that's right on because that Hebrews one fourteen verse is emphasizing, I think, what you're saying, which is the ministering spirits are sent out to serve for the sake, but not to just serve straight up us. So they're right. serving out for the sake, for our sake, and that the best... I guess our sake is essentially God's will. So it's not as if they're just going to come and hang out and do exactly what we want, unless for whatever reason, that is exactly what God wills for us to have experienced. And, and where I'm kind of, there's this lovely tension in what Jimmy's account says is I'm not going to debate that even though angels are spirit beings and they're incorporeal as terms of their nature, they're definitely capable at times of assuming at least the appearance, even if that's temporarily a bodily organisms. In fact, they do it so well in the scriptures that sometimes they're easily mistaken for humans. Right. My question is more like, especially in context of that passage, they always come with like a demonstration with a, a specific purpose and the purpose is made known. Right. Sometimes it's not revelatory, like you're saying, but other times it's just to affirm or encourage or to show God's power and strength. The other thing that's a little bit strange as I was thinking about Jimmy's question is 
What do you think about the angels or these alleged angels being the same age as like the teenagers? Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. Not that angels have to have a specific age, but you notice in the scriptures, we don't get much about their age, but they do seem to fall within some kind of, like we would all picture them at about like the same age probably, right? Yeah. And I think that's probably more a function of um, popular art, especially in the Middle Ages, um, sure. than it is of any sort of biblical revelation. I'm not aware of anything directly in the scripture that speaks to how angels naturally appear um, in terms of their age. Now, um, you know, the angels who um, are at uh, the resurrection, Mary doesn't seem to think anything is out of the ordinary. Right. She sees two men in, in brilliant clothes. And so we could presume that they're probably men in their middle age, 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. Um, but I can't think of any specific passages which describe in detail what what their age looks like. And probably because that's not the point. Right. right. They're, they're ageless beings. I mean, they had a start. So I suppose technically, if you knew everything, you could calculate what the actual age of an angel is. Right. That Exactly. That's where I'm kind of going with that. That's what's strange if you think about it. Right. They were created. Right. But because they're not bodily creatures, or at least we don't think they are. Um, some people in the early church actually thought that they were bodily in a certain sense. Um, but because they're not bodily creatures, they, they aren't affected by age. So they don't get older or younger in terms of the way that they appear or the way that they're, they're body, if you want to call it that, functions. Um, I think, you know, if if we affirm, which it seems like the scriptures do, that we, they can kind of assume appearances or even kind of take on bodily form at times, I, they can kind of take on bodily form or appearance of whatever the situation warrants, right? Whatever God has determined them to do and has directed them to do is what they do. So the the fact that they appeared to be, that the, whatever Jimmy experienced, that it appeared to be teenage girls, I don't see why that would be out of the realm of um, possible or probable even. Um, but given that, um, I wonder the kinds of explanations we might give as to why they appeared as teenage girls, I think probably appeal to some things we wouldn't want to think about. So like right, exactly. my mind immediately goes to like, well, so people when they walk by don't get confused or don't interrupt things. Well, I guess, but the angels don't have to appear at all. So whatever they were doing there, they didn't have to be visible. Right. Exactly. Assuming, assuming that that's what was going on. We don't know. Um, so I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what to do with that, but it, it strikes me from scripture that they can probably take on whatever appearance they need to for the, the, the proper, the propriety of the situation. This is a really great question. I mean, it's really kind of a fun little instance. So yeah. for me, I think the bottom line is, I'm not ruling it out because like you said, I don't want to speak against God's sovereign will and power to manifest himself in a way that's appropriate and that demonstrates that power. And at the same time, I think this is the kind of thing that probably warrants just a little bit of caution because we certainly don't want to go where the scriptures have not led us. Right. And to that effect, like even the, as he wrote kind of the response of the female leader who was there and kind of said, or maybe just my interpretation of the email, almost flippantly, like, well, maybe it was angels Yeah, kind of seems like, I almost want to say if you, if you're in the presence of angels in a, in a way where you're seeing them, I almost feel like you might know. But then again, in the scriptures, there's several times where they're easily right. mistaken. Yeah. So I guess I just don't have a good idea. I'm not ruling it out. There were clearly there was something powerful going on there, yeah. whether or not there were angels present or other people entered the room. There was some serious work being done on people's knees 
And maybe that's the the best thing that comes out of that account. Yeah. And I, I just want to add before we maybe move on to the next question, um, you know, we kind of poke fun at sort of like the scholastic questions about like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or do angels poop? Like we ask these questions and we, we make fun of them. Like, well, look at this meaningless speculation. But in actuality, we just went through the exact same kind of exercise that they did. Right. And exactly. The, the point of those questions wasn't just to engage in meaningless speculation. So the question about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin is really trying to get at like, first, do angels have bodies? Do they occupy space? Do they operate on the same laws of physics that we do? If they do, then how large are they? Are they able to change their size? Um, the question about angel excrement is, is asking questions about what's the nature of angels? Do they require some sort of sustenance for their being in a way similar to we require food? And if they do, do they process that sustenance and, and is there waste in the angelic body or something like that? So these questions are, are they seem esoteric and kind of strange, but they're there to kind of get at the underlying questions about the nature of angels or the nature of divine space or the interaction of divine space and time and all of those things. So we make fun of them and we use them kind of flippantly, but the scholastics weren't like crazy people, right? Thomas Aquinas wasn't an idiot and he wasn't crazy. And he asked a lot of these same kinds of questions. Right. I agree with that. I mean, there's been this rising tide of new age spirituality and that's been spurred by this crazy backlash against any kind of secular rationalism. Right. And so that's awakened this widespread curiosity about angels and the spirit world and superstition for that matter. So it is good for Christians to have a really well-grounded understanding of angelology. So like when this stuff comes up, you can have a cogent, intelligent conversation that with strong fidelity to the scriptures. Right. And you can sometimes say, like we're saying in some respects, it's great. These are great kind of thought experiments, but sometimes we just end on... There's a lot we do not know, and we're not going to go too far. And I think that's where the the questions in the Middle Ages went awry. So, you know, we're, we're not um, biblicists in the sense that we only draw deduct, we only read scripture and, and make theology from explicit statements, right? We both affirm the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, as well as, you know, most uh, Lutheran confessions and things like that, affirm that sometimes we have to draw conclusions and make deductions from scripture. And as long as those deductions are good and necessary, uh, meaning that they're, they're reasonable deductions. They are also things that the scripture drives us to rather than just the scripture kind of permits. We're on pretty good ground. And I think with this, that's where the medieval church kind of went crazy is they went, all right, well, we, we've got this tiny amount of information. So we're going to draw all these conclusions and then we're going to be really like dogmatic about it. And so with, with angels particularly, but anything that the scripture kind of only implicitly speaks to, we have to understand that we have to kind of be a little bit open-handed about those issues. Right. Absolutely. And that's what's so funny is basically with that particular question about do angels poop, the idea of food is coming from like Psalm 78, 25. Right. And the idea of eating is coming from Genesis 18, 8. So like you said, they are still trying to draw, but the question is, can you legitimately go from the little storybook, everybody poops to all <laughs> angels poop? Yeah. And that's where the good and necessary inference, I think, starts to break down. And at some point, don't you just say... Guys, isn't there something more important we could talk about? You know, yeah. I just think we come we come there at some point. So um, that was clearly like the definitive angel discussion, I'm pretty sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So next question. So this question is from Jimmy, another <laughs> Jimmy. 
I believe. They're, they're all from Jimmy. They're all Jimmy. Like Hashtag Jimmys. all Jimmy. Jimmy's. Yeah, there we go. Are those <laughs> are those sprinkles or are those candies for you? Sprinkles. Okay. Per- I don't know what they are Particularly the black and white sprinkles. Oh, I thought they were red. No, they're like black and white. Are there red chewy candies called Jimmy's or am I just making that up? I think you're making that up. Okay. Never mind then. Moving right along. <laughs> so Jimmy has another Jimmy has this question. Uh, on the podcast where we discussed the Federal Vision, which was just last episode, I think, yep. we mentioned that one of the common traits among adherents of that perspective is to play a little bit fast and loose with classical theological definitions. And we use justification as the example. And so Jimmy posed this really great question as kind of a follow-up to that episode. How do we handle discussions or debates with other Christians when the conflict centers on a difference of definition? Right. So this is one of those areas where people who are not um, involved in theological kind of discourse get really annoyed with theologians because it seems like sometimes the majority of a conversation between theologians is just like trying to nail down what a word in a conversation means. Um, And as we kind of uh, explained, the reason for that is because it's really important because we can't even... We can't even have a discussion about something until we agree on what the terms that we're using mean. And that's kind of a feature of postmodern language theory, right? So old language theory had almost this kind of like platonic ideal of language that like words have this meaning that sort of floats out there somewhere. And a word is connected to a concrete concept every single time. But if you think about how words actually work, it's just this little series of squiggly lines that represent a concept and may represent lots of different concepts. And so when we start a kind of theological controversy or discussion, it's important for us to start that conversation by really narrowing in on what the terms, uh, the terms that we're using mean and where there might be points of contention in what those terms mean. So to give an example in the, the federal vision issues, if they were willing to, at the beginning of the debate, sit down and say, all right, we're going to use the term justification in this way, and we're always going to use it in this way, then their theology would be a lot more um, understandable. And the same would go for them with like covenant or union with Christ. All of those terms have flexible meanings. And part of the problem with the federal vision specifically is that they refuse to do that. Um, but when you start a, a debate or a, a controversy or even just a discussion um, without doing that, a lot of times the two people in the parties are talking past each other and don't even realize it. Just a funny story. I remember one time in college, right, I had um, I, I was roommates with four, five other guys and um, four of them were biblical studies majors. And so you can imagine what would happen if you put five biblical studies majors in a single dorm room um, and um, hopped them up on caffeine all the time and pizza. It was like every night was a different theological argument. And I remember one time I was having this argument with my roommate, Doug, and we were arguing about the Lord's Supper about what it was, how it functioned, what the purpose was. And we argued for like 45 minutes, like really aggressive arguing, like aggressive enough that the RA had to come down from down the hall and tell us that we had to be quiet. (laughs) And this is out of control. We finally got to the point where we realized that we agreed with each other the entire time. But because we didn't sit down to like hammer out the details of what different words we were using mean, 
and never never stopped throughout the process to say, well, how are you using this term? We argued with each other for 45 minutes about something we agreed on. And, and now that's a kind of a ridiculous um, example, but that's that happens in online debates, the, right? The Piper Jones, our Scott Clark argument that's been going on for a month or two now is largely an argument about terms. And my assessment is that they're actually all kind of saying the same thing, but because they can't agree on what different terms mean or won't agree on what different terms mean, they've got this online feud that's being propagated when largely they actually mean basically the same thing. Right. I'm with you on that. I mean, to me, arguments and the words from which they're constructed are like a tree trunk and leaves. So if you just have these words that are disassociated because you haven't defined them, then there are there are leaves without a tree trunk. They're just falling to the ground. So as you're talking them out, there's nothing for them to grab a part of, to be part of a, a larger whole or some kind of cogent context. So I think the best thing that we can do as Christians or in any sphere of discussion is to start with what should be normative, and that is charity and grace, and right. start by asking lots of questions. What do you mean by that? How would you explain that? How do you define that? Instead of just going straight to like, I have my verses and you have your verses, so let's cage match this out. Right. Instead, I think a lot of those discussions or arguments can be handled better by first asking questions because Jesus did that so well. He was always asking questions, even though the Pharisees to do two things. One, to like uncover what it is they actually believed. And then two, to find like a point of entry so that he could enter into the dialogue. Right. I think that is the best way to approach this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely times this, this might be something that some of my, some of our audience disagrees with, but there are times to draw your theological sword, right? Sure. And there are times that. that you have to get a little bit bloody and, um, that's an unfortunate reality, but you know, Paul says, I think it's first or second Corinthians, one of the letters to the Corinthians, he says, there must be factions among you in order to kind of establish who it is that's right. Um, so the fact that someone's right and someone's wrong is a reality is going to cause some conflict. And the church at times has to settle these controversies for the good of Christians. Um, but we have to do that with charity because in most cases, the people that we're drawing our theological swords against are actually brothers in Christ. And so we have to kind of be intentional about how we engage in those theological battles, how we do those to seek the good of the person we're debating with. And I think in some cases we have to do it with the humility to recognize that, you know, we might be the ones that are wrong. So we come to the battle and we are ready for the fight, but we recognize that the goal on both sides should be to glorify and honor God. And that redirects the redirects the argument, redirects the debate to a different kind of focus that I think is more likely to come up with a positive outcome. And it's okay to have rigorous or even vigorous debate about something. I think what we're saying here, or maybe even Jimmy is hinting at, is Let's make sure that debate is about actual things and right. not just miscommunication about what words mean. Right. And that's the important thing. And in context of the scripture, you know, we use the example of James speaking about justification as different from forensic justification. And that's why it's so important to say, well, tell me what you mean in this context, because likely you may end up saying, oh, yeah, I agree with that definition in this particular place. Right. And that other person may say, I agree with your definition in this particular place. And then you can hug each other and go get a beer. And, right. and that way you're encouraging one another. So I'm with you. There are times when we should pull out the sword and go to battle. 
There are also times where I feel like, though, when if we can ask these types of questions and be very polite, honestly, and listening first, being quick to listen and slow to speak, at least at first, then what we're going to do is create an environment where love guides and there's good, polite discourse. Because yeah. as we talked about before, whether it's online or in person, sometimes the very first thing that turns somebody off from quote unquote Calvinism or a form of theology is the really bad overzealous attitudes that people have where they just want to throw down. So I'm all about pulling that apart, getting rid of that caricature and saying like, I'm here to listen first and then to talk second. So that that would be my approach. I I don't know if you've used that before. Yeah. And I mean, I think a good example in the Reformation was when Zwingli and Luther came together to try to find out. So the the Swiss Reformation and the German Reformation started independently of each other, and they kind of followed the same trajectories. And then when the thoughts started to sort of bump into each other, they realized, oh, we're saying a lot of the same things. And so um, Luther and Zwingli get together to at the Marburg Colloquy. probably said that wrong, but they get together and they, for several days, they hammer out these doctrines and they find that it was like 15 out of 16 points or something like that, that they agreed. And the the beauty of that is you get to see how much agreement there is. And the, the other benefit of that is that you get to see where the disagreement actually lies. So rather than, rather than argue about things that they agree on, they were able to say, well, we agree on all these things and here's where we actually disagree. And so for the next however long it was that those two theological camps interacted with each other, they didn't spend as much time arguing about things that they agreed on and instead could focus their time on the things that they actually disagreed on. And I think, you know, in the federal vision thing, the federal visionists, one of the problems is they go, well, we affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, they don't. Um, they they do outwardly, but their theology doesn't agree with it. But the beauty of a confession is now we can come together and say this is these are the points we agree on. So we don't have to spend any time on those things. Exactly. exactly. We can spend all of our time arguing about or disagreeing about or coming to theological blows about union with Christ and covenant inclusion and what baptism means and how justification functions instead of like some of these auxiliary things about you know the nature of the end times. Well, you know, there's some disagreements there, but by and large, the Federal Vision's view of the end times fits within the Westminster standards. So why are we going to spend time arguing about that instead of getting to where the issue actually lies? Right. Just stop it. Just stop it. That's also another great plug for confessionalism, isn't it? Like, even if you don't go to a church that is confessional, the idea that I think all serious people that want to understand the scriptures should pick up those resources and look to them as a guide, as kind of this fence posting, so to speak, of this area in which we can live and breathe, breathe and have good definitions and come to common sources. And so when you're in a discussion and somebody asks you, well, how do you feel about this? Or what do you, how do you understand this term to be applied or used? The confession is just such a great first resource for that. Yep, absolutely. So use that stuff. So that was a great question. All right. So here's one, another question. Uh, also from Jim, in case you're keeping track. <laughs> So we also had a podcast recently where we talked about the whole lordship salvation thing. And we threw out this idea of crisis point, which is honestly kind of unique to certain denominations or certain kind of theological streams. And it seemed like a lot of the people that were listening to that conversation, one, enjoyed the talk, but two, were kind of new to that idea. So we got a lot of questions about that. Yeah. And we kind of defined crisis point. Um, You remember Pastor Ben LeClaire was on that show with us. 
as this kind of demonstrative moment of whole life surrender that occurs after justification. So Jim wrote in with these set of questions, which are intensely practical and right to the point. He's right on. So here's his questions. If a person has a crisis point experience after being justified, what did their life look like before the crisis point? And does this system of thought have a carnal Christian category? What do you think, Tony? Well, you're probably more the expert than I am, but I've been reading um, Mike Horton's book, Christ the Lord. He was the editor. Um, I mentioned it last week and the week before, and I think the week before that. Um, and they make the point in that book um, that the lordship or the anti-lordship, uh, which it's, it's ridiculous to even say this, but the anti-lordship salvation people <laughs> were really actually saying you could at a moment in time assent to the facts that that are required of the gospel right they have this category of like saving facts that right. if you assent to these facts then you are saved and then completely abandon the faith you could walk away from the faith you could say there's no god you could live however you want and you would still be saved because at some point in time you assented to those facts um I don't think my impression of um, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the denomination that Pastor Ben is in, that you're a member in a church at, I don't think that that is a common category in those groups anymore. Does that sound right? Yeah, I agree with that. The so thing, it's just troubling because I think that, sorry, I just totally cut you off. No, no, the thing fine. is that um, it's not, I would say you're right. It's not an explicit category. The question is whether it kind of gets smuggled in implicitly. Yeah. And so that's what I was going to say is that I don't think you would hear many pastors in any situation or any context preaching that from their pulpits anymore. Um, but, you know, I've been really hard on Billy Graham and I'm not sure exactly why I've been so hard on Billy Graham specifically, but the sort of walk the aisle, sign the decision card, um, you know, come to Jesus in an emotional moment, that theology builds this kind of perspective that as long right. as you do this thing, as long as you pray this prayer, as long as you um, go to this summer camp and get baptized in the lake by the youth pastor, then you're going to heaven. And I find that even, even in like solid reformed confessional groups, you still see people who have kids that are not at all walking with the Lord or friends that are not at all walking with the Lord. And they still kind of point to some point in the past when they did and sort of like express that that's their hope. Well, you know, it, you know, Jake is, um, you know, he's, he's in a, he's backsliding right now and he lives with his girlfriend and she's pregnant, but, but you know, he, he was raised in the church and, you know, he, he got baptized, he, you know, he took his first communion at such and such a date and he got com confirmed, whatever it is. And, and there's, not really any one particular group of theology that this is pr more prominent in. Even in reform right. circles, I see this. Um, but they, they're they not consistent because they would say, well, no, you have to have fruit in order to have assurance of salvation. But then when it comes to looking at other people that they really want to be saved, they do kind of look back at that point. And this does create this category of people who are saved and are going to be in heaven, but they don't have, they don't have any fruit. They don't, they don't follow the Lord in any way. Um, and they just don't seem to, if you didn't know that at some point 10 years ago, they were at summer camp and, you know, cried during a worship song and prayed to ask Jesus into their heart, you would never know that they were a Christian. Yeah. The perspective isn't quite so dramatic as like anti-lordship, but just to give, give everybody an idea, here's, 
here's how like the Christian and Missionary Alliance statement of faith would recognize a sanctification. And they would call it both a process or crisis and progressive experience. So here's how John stumbled. Let me read like a quick quote so you can hear this too, Tony, because I'm really curious for your perspective. Let me read the quote and then you tell me kind of you're just off the cuff reaction to it. So this is John Stumbo, who's the current president of the Christian Missionary Alliance. He explains it this way. By crisis, we mean that there is a starting point of significance. All who follow Christ must come to a place where we understand our complete need of his lordship in our lives. We have already come to him for the forgiveness of our sins. We've admitted to him our complete inability to achieve salvation on our own. We acknowledge that without him, we cannot enter heaven. Yeah, and so... I guess for me, the, the, the main issue with that is that it does draw this distinction, right? So in, in a reformed category, I guess I could even make space for it to say that every person who is justified will eventually come to this knowledge of needing to submit to Jesus as Lord, right? I could make space for it in a reformed framework, but most of these theologies exist in an Arminian framework. Right. And so there's this real possibility that someone may become justified at some point who in that language comes to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, but never actually comes to the conclusion in their life that they need to submit to Jesus's Lordship as well. So I think, you know, this, this anti-Lordship um, stream of thought is still really prominent in especially Arminian dispensationalist circles. It's, it's kind of the, the edge of it has kind of been taken off. Um, and to me, that's almost more of an optics thing than an actual substantive theological thing. The, the anti-lordship people kind of got embarrassed by how, I think, how handily their position was sort of defeated from every every angle, right? John MacArthur comes in, biblically just decimates the position. The Reformed come in, they have they have lots of nice words to say for MacArthur, even though they disagree with him in certain significant areas, they have nothing nice to say about Zayn Hodge's position. Um, so I, I think that the position still ends up creating those two categories. And I, I see both of those categories in that faith statement. Um, even if that's never strongly preached from the pulpit, even if that's not something that the average person in the congregation is um, privy to as a regular sort of feature of their teaching, that's still something that the people who are coming through the training institutes and training arms of those denominations are still kind of being indoctrinated with. And it has to make its way into the preaching. So it's a really concerning kind of feature in that, that faith statement, I would say. I don't think you can avoid the fact that it does lead to bifurcation. It just has to, because you're creating two distinct groups. So kind of to pull us back to Jim's question, what does a person's life look like if they've been justified and then they had a crisis point? What does it look like before the crisis point? I don't know because I don't believe that this category of carnal Christianity exists in the Bible, but I can see how it gets read into this type of philosophy because it's the old example of you basically get your pass into heaven and and then you can live like hell till you get there. That is the argument that's being made again, implicitly. And so I think what's happened is a lot of people that are well-intentioned in their zeal to deny that good works are a requirement of salvation, they've gone to the extreme of also denying that good works are even a valid evidence for salvation. So right. to me, the crisis point, if you want to call a crisis point, and ironically, this might be a question two of definitions, like getting at definitions, but yeah. the crisis point for me is what happens at the moment of conversion, because the right. ability to consciously turn to God in repentance and faith is a real thing that God rots in our lives. And if he's bringing that out, like a whole life transformation, 
is in some ways the start of a life of surrender. You can't have one or not the other. So like if the fruit of the spirit are truly from the spirit, then that means when we are transformed and regenerated, that even though we do not understand yet entirely what it means to submit before God and all of that fullness, we are understanding that repentance and humility require that we recognize we are sitting under somebody who has bigger and better and full authority than ourselves. And I think you, you shouldn't try to take that away from a Christian. You yeah. know what I mean? You're, you're divorcing, you're jettisoning this idea that you can just give intellectual or emotional assent to the fact that you're a selfish person that's out on the high seas and is being saved without considering that a heart that is truly transformed cannot divorce those two, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that I've been convicted of as I've been reading Horton's book and the different essays is we have this situation where modern reform thought is shaped by lots of forces that are not reformed in any sense. So one of the things that they've been pointing out, as I've mentioned, is MacArthur's theology. It seems like it's changed a bit since, you know, this was 25 years ago. So it seems like it's changed a bit in the meantime. But at the time, MacArthur's theology in very significant ways was indistinguishable from medieval Roman Catholicism, right? Obedience and surrender were part of faith. And so right. that's that's the Roman Catholic position is that an unformed faith is merely assent, but once you add love and works of charity, then it's a formed faith, and that's the kind of faith that saves you. And MacArthur was saying basically the same thing. But what I've really noticed as I listen to people talk is the classic reformed position is that faith and repentance are separate things. They're not united to each other. They're not one in the same thing. One never comes without the other, but they're, they're not the same thing. And repentance is a result of justification, not the cause of justification. Right. So, and where this comes to bear is kind of the first big Calvinist voice that I remember hearing on the radio was Todd uh, Friel, who's on Wretched Radio. And he does this thing called Witness Wednesday. And he goes out and he hits people with the law and he he gets them to admit that they're sinners. And, um, you know, he, he says, well, what do you need to do to be saved? And his answer is always repent and put your trust in Jesus. That's Amen. what you have to do to be saved. Well, the problem with that is that repentance is not what we have to do to be saved, classically speaking. Right. Putting your trust in Jesus is what you have to right, be saved. Right. And then once Jesus saves you, then you repent and turn away from your sins. Right. And so we've made this repentance. And that I mean, not to get super historic nerdy, but that's the marrow controversy, right? This isn't a new thing, right? If you read the whole Christ by um, Sinclair Ferguson, the marrow men were saying that you are not the, not the marrow men, the, the church, the established church at the time were saying you have to demonstrate some sort of level of repentance before justification can happen. Well, the the voice in that controversy, the marrow men who came out of it were saying, no, 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 no. You, you, put, you trust Jesus and Jesus saves you. Justification is, it comes about exclusively because of God's will. And it happens through faith alone. Repentance is not part of faith. Repentance right. is the result of God's work in us. And so, that crisis point that they want to point to the recognition of our sin and turning away from it. That's the crisis point. And that happens in every single Christian, every single time. Exactly. So that's where I think the real disconnect is here is like I said, in a reformed 
a reformed context where God's will is, is exhaustively being executed, we could say that there may be a period of time between the point of faith and an active outward repentance, right? We can, we can make room for that. As long as we say the repentance will always necessarily come about after the faith as a result of it. But where the Christ, this crisis point, higher life theology, anti-lordship salvation, whatever you want to call it, is that this repentance is not necessarily connected to faith. It's not necessarily a result of it. And I had never heard the theology, but I remember thinking in those categories, right? I came to Jesus at Acquire the Fire on January 23rd, 1998 at about 8 p.m. And I remember thinking a couple, you know, months later, being told by my youth pastor, you got to get serious about your faith. You got to get serious about your faith. You got to put the old flesh to death. Well, now that I'm looking at it, my old flesh was put to death on the cross. Right. And Amen. That, the benefits of that were applied to me through faith at some point in time that I may not even be fully aware of. But to think that I'm justified and then later have to put my, my flesh to death. That's not Reformed theology. That's not even really classic Protestant theology. Um, so we have to be really careful with those categories. And that's being enslaved to your own ability and capabilities as well. Right. Exactly. Which is basically anti-gospel. I mean, this is like, we need to be careful that we don't take repentance and confuse it with the fruit that it produces. Right. So you know, like when you and I got married, I mean, not to each other, but like when you and I <laughs> got married to our respective wives it was clear that we were making a declaration to live in some type of submission, even right. though we didn't know at the time what the full breadth and scope of that submission would be like, either experientially or perhaps even just intellectually. Right. But it doesn't make it any more real that what we were doing was committing ourselves to that type of surrender from the very beginning. And right. so when I think of the process of the Order Salutis or coming to faith and then faith leading to repentance, which you're exactly right, that is kind of the line that the scriptures draw through it. It's a bit to me like ro launching a rocket. Like when you start the rocket launch sequence, you can't undo it. And so all these right. things start to lead to each other. So I think full and true regeneration always and necessarily leads to that almost, almost coterminous, but certainly adjacent crisis points of repentance and turning, right. which to go like full circle, I love what you said about witnessing to people. And I think, isn't it such a better prayer? as opposed to having somebody say, well, pray this sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. Isn't it so much better to sit and talk with that person and then pray for them that God would bring about the fruit in their lives, that he'd be faithful to them and honor the commitment that they seem to be making, that he right. would, in fact, bring it to bear and that the spirit would allow them to follow through with the confession that they seem to be making. That just seems right. to me like a better experience. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't know. I mean, Todd Friel is really closely associated with John MacArthur, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if he sort of fell on that end of the things. I don't know that if you really asked him, he would say repentance is part of what's necessary for justification. But we have to. So if we're putting things in order, right, and justification is the line. Faith is on one side of the line and repentance is on the other side of the line. The error happens when we put justification or put faith and repentance on the side of the line that you have to accomplish, has to be accomplished before justification. So faith, justification, repentance. That's the right order. That's the reformed ordo salutis. Mm -hmm. Faith, repentance, justification. That's not the reformed ordo salutis. So it's really important. It seems like a little thing. And and you're right, in time temporally. 
that happens basically all at the same time for most people, right? We don't, we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is and we don't trust him to save us. And then some point five months later, we repent. Um, but that seems like almost like what the, what the crisis point theology is saying happens normatively, right? That most people believe Jesus believe Jesus is who he says he is. And then later on, the implications of that play out in their life. Maybe, probably, hopefully. Right. But that's just not, I mean, we have, that ends up creating a class of Christians who are constantly seeking an experience to validate or to complete their salvation. All that I need to do to validate my salvation is to look to Christ and say, this is what he promised to do. And I trust him. And then I can also say, here's what he promised would happen as a result of his salvation. And I also see those things. And so that's a, it's a double assurance of salvation rather than kind of this after the fact assurance that people seek through fruit. If you lose that first objective assurance that Christ promised to save me and I trust him to do it, therefore he will save me, then you've lost all of the assurance. And that's kind of the common Lutheran critique, actually, of the way the Reformed seek assurance. But I think it's a misunderstanding of, of the way things actually work. And that's a beautiful motivating assurance as well. Right. That it yeah, encourages us to partner with God because of what he has done and how he has empowered us to live. Which is why Moses says, like, these commands are not too far off for you. That you can't really grab hold of them by the power of God. Yeah. So it, it's what's strange is in defense of the, the CMA, they do say, even in the writings about this, They'll often say, this is confusing. And I agree right. because I don't think it's it's super clear. I'm now in agreement with, I kind of like the the full expression of it, obviously, as we've talked about it. And again, to Jim's question, I would say that they're trying to emphasize, I think, in so much as I understand it, that there is a part that we play in our progressive sanctification. But it feels like it's just so much easier to say, there is a part that we play in our progressive sanctification. Yeah rather than trying to nail down what they're going to say is somehow enveloped in the whole idea of salvation. But for me, it just creates a third unnecessary category. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and just for my own little hobby horse, the part that we play in sanctification is that it's done to us. Right. It's done from the outside in. And then there are logical consequences and actions that flow from that. But there are some people who would say that, um, I forget who it is, but I heard it in one of Nate Pickowitz's sermons. There was a quote that he said where sanctification is 100% us and 100% God. And that is mm. 100% wrong. That is sketchy. Right? I love Nate, and I don't know who he was quoting, but that's 100% wrong. Sanctification is done to us, and then we work from a position of sanctification. Right. And that sanctification is um, progressive in that God is increasingly purifying us, but it's always and only ever God who is purifying us. The second we say we're purifying ourselves, even if we're only cooperating to purify ourselves, then what you're doing is saying someone who's not pure can somehow make something more pure. And exactly. that just doesn't, it just can't work. Exactly. If you're operating from a beginning point of selfishness and rebellion, then how can we even think that somehow there's 0.01% of us that's pure that we can bring to bear into the situation? Right. It's like yeah. saying just if somebody says, well, what you need to do to really grow in your faith or grow in your relationship with God in closeness or abiding or whatever is you just need to bear more 
bring to bear more fruit of the spirit as if right. like we, we, we grow that, you know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly the fruit of the spirit is what happens to us because of what God has done for us and right. in us. And the thing is, while some might say we're like splitting hairs, how much better is it though? I keep asking that question, but how much better is it though? Honestly, <laughs> That we can sit from a place and say, God has done everything. Like it's not, it's really not about how much I do, but rather how much God has done for me in salvation. And therefore I am not tied to work harder in any way, not even a little bit to say, I just need to pull up my socks because if, if all I went to church and all they told me was pull up your socks and work harder. This week you had a bad week, pull up your socks and work harder. By the time I left, I would be like, I'm so discouraged. I cannot pull my socks up anymore. They're already up to my thighs. So the fact that God does that all for us, and that's where we start, man, that is so liberating. It it doesn't remove responsibility for action to put into play, but it does give me a different sense of strength and peace, real peace, that peace with the maker of the world who should justly deny me access to his love and then punish me. And instead, what I get is all the benefits of Christ, which mean that I can walk in holiness by his power. Absolutely. Well, that should just about wrap it up. We're going to give away some books real quickly. <laughs> the, the best segue. I like how people asked throughout some questions and then you and I basically were just like, let's, it's sermon time. We're just going to yeah. drop out some, some hardcore gospel centered truth right here. Yeah. Well, again, we uh, have a 58 minute podcast and we are on 60 minutes at this point. So um, we had three people who didn't claim their books come on people so i think they don't listen to the show which means they don't get their books that's exactly right so salvation is you know obviously by grace through faith book winning is by works you gotta listen (laughs) and you gotta tell us so we've got some new winners right we do so i'm gonna go through them quickly if you hear your name you have until episode 64 is recorded to claim your book. Otherwise we will cast the names into the outer darkness and we will (laughs) never again think of them. Yes. So if you are Michael Kisner, Michael Kisner or or Joshua Jackson or Ryan Austin, then please email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com using the email that you registered with. And we will make sure we get you your books. Absolutely. Again, Michael Kisner, Joshua Jackson, or Ryan Austin. And here's my encouragement for the week as we close. We love getting all these questions and having all this wonderful dialogue. So why don't you join in the fun? Email us at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. And if your name is Jim, we know you got questions. So just email us at (laughs) reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Absolutely. And also, we're very excited. We've now got the equipment. We just have to figure out how to do it. But we're going to start doing some voicemails as well. So you can call us at 607-444-2767. Bros. And we will uh, listen to your voicemails and we'll get them on the air as soon as I look up some YouTube videos about how to do it. Um, we're still <laughs> High-tech learning. podcasting. It is a moving target, people. It's always learning something new. So... Uh, Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this, Tony, and I'm really so glad that there were some other voices besides ours, at least if only through email. This has been good times. I've enjoyed it. it. Yes. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh